Welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and cocaine bear. That's right, cocaine bear has arrived, and Stephen Garrett and I will talk about it in just a few minutes, the ultimate 80s exploitation film for 2023. We're also going to talk to Book and Film Globe contributor Jake Harris about the strange decline of sex in movies coming out of Hollywood. There's plenty of violence still, but not a lot of sex. And we're going to talk about why that is and uh, the politics around that. And But first, it's censorship time again on the Book and Film Globe podcast. It almost always is. Michael Washburn is here to talk about an uh, effort to boulderize, to edit, to modernize and to diminish the works of novelist Roald Dahl. And after this brief self-produced musical interlude, Michael will be here to discuss why this is wrong. We talk a lot about censorship on this podcast and on Book and Film Globe in general. And uh, I would say the censorship story of the moment, perhaps of the year, one of the most outrageous instances of uh, censorship in a long time uh, popped up this week when uh, it was revealed that Puffin Books out of the UK had altered the text of several of Roald Dahl's beloved uh, children's novels. And uh, this was met with pretty much a universal scorn uh, across the internet and the literary world, but uh, it's it's definitely worth talking about, and Michael Washburn did an excellent job covering it for us, and he's here with me now. Hello, Michael. Hi, Neil. Yeah, so what, uh, maybe explain a little bit about, if, if for some reason people haven't heard about this, uh, what was going on? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Roald Dahl is an enormously popular, world-famous author, and he is estimated to have sold some 300 million books. And that's during his lifetime and since his passing in 1990. He's a household name. And he wrote in a lot of genres, and he wrote children's books as well as books for adult readers. And the UK imprint of Penguin, Puffin Books, decided, and evidently there was some consultation with his estate, that some adjustments needed to be made to the children's books because there was certain content that doesn't sit well with some people today in the present moment. There are references to characters being fat and ugly and crazy and also certain kind of incidental passages that they don't feel hold up in the present about women working as cashiers and things. And so the estate and the publisher in consultation with this organization that employs inclusion ambassadors, which I think is an extremely Orwellian phrase work to revise the text. Now let's be very clear about how this is different and not different from past censorship. The inclusion ambassadors have not just removed a word here or there, but have rewritten Dahl and added long passages to his work. I want to make clear that if they had simply taken out something here or there and made quote-unquote alternate versions available alongside the originals, clearly indicating which was which, then I would disagree. But there would be some precedent for what they had done. For instance, 
if you look at cinema, there's a notorious Ruggiero Diodato movie called Cannibal Holocaust, where they killed a real turtle and a pig and some squirrel monkeys in the course of making the, the film. And if you strongly object to animal killings, as obviously a lot of people do, and you want to watch a version with those scenes removed, I believe there's a Blu-ray out there that offers you that alternate version. So there is precedent for that. Right. But this, I mean, Roald Dahl is mainstream culture to say the least, you know, who his works continually are being adapted and, and they're, they're still widely read. This is not cannibal Holocaust, right? The thing that, um, there are a number of things that they, well, first of all, women still do work as cashiers. The last time I checked, maybe not exclusively, <laughs> but you know, there's definitely, but the thing that really struck me was there was this passage in Matilda, uh, which is, uh, you know, increasingly popular role doll work. It's all, it's always being adapted um, where they talk about Matilda, Matilda is this, you know, tween girl who loves to read. And instead of having her reading Joseph Conrad, um, they have her reading Jane Austen. And it's just, it just, it's appalling to me. I mean, not there's obviously there's nothing against reading Jane Austen, but you know, Matilda was a, an adventurous girl and Conrad may, makes more sense for someone like her than Jane Austen, who was essentially the, the, the first and perhaps best romance novelist. That's right. There are certain elements that have been changed, but they are there for thematic reasons. They're part of the work. And it's not as though Dahl was writing a certain time, and so he mentioned Joseph Conrad, and if he'd been writing in a more enlightened time, he would have mentioned Jane Austen instead. No, there are thematic reasons in the piece of fiction why it's Conrad who is referred to. You're quite right about that. Well, you know, and, and, I was, I, and, 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 the, and the idea is that it's because Conrad was a colonialist, colonialist author, and this is, you know, and, and, and colonialism is, to say the least, no longer the rage. But, you know, he was also a very strongly anti-colonialist author, if you, if you actually take the time to read his books. You know, his, his work was a critique of, of colonialism, as well as being uh, exciting uh, to read. And it- You're absolutely right. Take a story like An Outpost of Progress. The title is ironic because the Europeans who run this so-called outpost of progress are idiots, and they are totally a disgrace to the civilization they supposedly represent. So you're quite right. Conrad is an anti-colonialist writer. There's no reason to expunge him. So this is not at all like cannibal holocaust where you have something that's really egregious like animal cruelty and people have good reason to get rid of it no the inclusion ambassadors have really gone to work and they've taken out references to people being fat or ugly or wearing wigs whole sentences yeah, the wigs reported. the wigs thing was in, it was insane to me you know that you can't criticize a woman for wearing a wig cuz she could have all kinds of reasons for that i'm just like okay this is not uh, Twitter discourse, you know? <laughs> it's just insane to me. And, you know, all right, let, let's, let's be clear. Although I don't feel like Puffin hasn't rescinded these, these books. They haven't apologized for it, as far as I, as far as I know, at least as, as we're talking. This was met, you know, to my great uh, you know, approval to, with a lot of, um, you know, derision from all corners. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously the, the usual conservative sources were going to be attacking this because this is, you know, even though I said, please don't use the word woke culture in your piece, this is, you know, the, the apotheosis of woke culture in a lot of ways. But also, 
liberal voices, you know, were um, appalled by this because any writer with half a brain is going to be able to see that if this could happen to Roald Dahl, who is one of the best-selling authors of all time, it could easily happen to them. Mm -hmm. It could at some time in the very near future, because what's going on is extremely presumptuous. Someone with a highly specific set of social and political views decides that she knows what is the right way for a text to read and is taking a text written a few decades ago and rewriting it and adding lines to make it more of the moment. And the inclusion ambassadors don't see anything wrong with this, but whose work would ever have integrity and reflect what the author wanted to write if people were to go this route. It's absolutely crazy. And I think you're quite right. This has been very widely condemned and ridiculed, as it should be. Yeah, and you know, in some ways, maybe this is a, a corner-turning moment, um, at least for, for this kind of censorship. You know, the, it, it, we've talked about this a lot. Like, from the right or from conservatives, a lot, a lot of this current censorship is like, schools shouldn't have these books in their library, or maybe, you know, are they, you know, kids shouldn't be allowed to read such and such. Uh, and I don't agree with any of that either, but it is, that is of a degree different than this sort of, than um, cutting off the, the quote unquote offensive stuff at the pass, right? And you have the people who are kind of, kind of controlling the levers of publishing and culture tend to be on the political and cultural left. So, you know, this is a dangerous precedent if we allow it to stand. And where does it ever end? And why would this only be done to books for children? Are we going to remove passages from the Koran about sex and gender and put in lines approved by the National Organization for Women? And there are so many contemporary writers, Brad Easton Ellis, John Irving. I happen to think he's a rotten writer, but there are passages in his work that don't sit well with Feminists, are they going to have their words expunged and new words imported by the publishers and put in their mouths? Well, female writers, there's plenty of stuff in, in, in you know, women, books written by women that uh, these inclusion ambassadors could find offensive if they were to uh, really, really comb deeply, right? I mean, it, there's no one is safe from this. I mean, it really doesn't matter what your um, gender or your uh, ethnic background or your politics are, really. Like, you know, these who gets to decide who the inclusion ambassadors are and who are they that, you know, I know, I know the company they've named the company that worked with Puffin, but we don't know, really know who these secret, um, these secret censors are. So it's just, it's just so bizarre. <laughs> what, a, what a bizarre story, but I, you know, I am, we were on the right side of it, you know, I, I, not surprisingly, but so it was just about everyone else. There were, there were a few straggling kind of writers on Twitter, like Philip Pullman, who wrote the His Dark Materials trilogy, made some kind of weak statement like, well, I don't agree with the inclusion ambassadors. Maybe we should just take Roald Dahl's books out of print. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, guy. <laughs> Yeah, just w w way to kneecap the competition, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, and you know, then there was there was a smattering of other writers who are online who were like, "I don't see why this is such a big deal." But um, again, like anyone with a brain can see that this is wrong. So um, we'll keep an eye on it at on Book and Film Globe, and um, you know, hopefully, we won't have another inclusion ambassadors controversy anytime real soon. Michael, thanks for writing about that. We got one more point before we say adieu. I just want to say that 
it's important to understand what free expression is about and people who don't support free speech for speech they find distasteful or offensive are not in favor of free speech at all. And that point is so often forgotten and it's tragic. Agreed. Agreed. All right, Michael, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Millions of dollars worth of cocaine fell from the sky this morning in Knoxville, Tennessee. There's more of this out there. They dumped it somewhere. I'm looking for my daughter. Forest is a dangerous place. Hey, Henry, check it out. Something got into it. A deer, maybe. A lot of cocaine was lost. I need you to go and get it. No, 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 don't eat that, don't eat that. Let's see what kind of effect that has on The bear, it fucking did cocaine. A bear did cocaine. There was a bear. A bear? It was far. Hey, that's inappropriate. You're safe. Bears can't climb trees. Of course I can. I don't know if I was looking forward to seeing Cocaine Bear or if I was looking forward to telling people I was going to see Cocaine Bear. I think it's kind of a, more the latter. Like, I, I wanted to say I'd seen it. Um, <laughs> I didn't really... I, I, did, I mean, it's not like I didn't want to see it. But, you know, from the second the poster appeared and from the second the trailer appeared, you know, Cocaine Bear was more of a meme or a gift than a movie. And I'd say that the actual movie itself is, uh, is the movie version uh, of a meme in a lot of ways. And cocaine bear is here. It's finally here. The, the day of cocaine bear has arrived and Stephen Garrett wrote about it on the site. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Yes. So you and I are in almost 100% perfect universal agreement about cocaine bear, which is that, you know, the premise is so great and the execution is very uneven. You know, the one thing I was going to the one point I want to make before I let you uh, wax poetic about Cocaine Bear is that, you know, this is a movie set in 1985. And to me, it could almost be a movie from 1985, the way it's structured, the, totally. way, the way it's shot, the paper thinness of the characters, the, the odd morality of it all, the mindless, gory violence. It, it felt like, I mean, obviously Elizabeth Banks, who directed it, and, and Lord Miller, who produced it, are no dummies. They knew exactly what they were doing. Nonetheless, they produced something that felt like uh, kind of a, felt like grindhouse garbage from my childhood. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah, amen. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, kind of recreation of the, the nasties that came out, the video nasties that came out in the 80s. I mean, the title alone, I mean, I just like embrace it. You know what I mean? Like if you feel hooked, if that, if reading or seeing this poster, like makes you 
even vaguely want to go to a theater, then just do it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, you will not be disappointed because it is exactly what you think it will be. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, it's like what they say on the cooking shows. The movie fulfilled the brief, right? <laughs> I mean, co- Cocaine Bear, it's not like there's any weight. He appears in the – she, she, the bear is a she, appears in the first scene, um, commits some grisly acts of violence, and, and from there it, it doesn't really slow down. Um, well, I mean, I guess um, – you know, there's about there's about ten or fifteen minutes where we meet all the victims slash characters in various settings, and then then once once the bear reappears, uh, it it doesn't stop. No, but it's no. not like a, it's not like this endlessly pulse pounding film either. Like it has like these odd stops and starts, and and the times the the time frame is really weird. Like it takes people like some people who are fit forever to hike to something. Whereas it takes other unfit people a lot less time, like that gazebo thing, you know, that right. uh, out of shape detective got there Im- really quickly. Um, whereas all the people who were young and fit took forever to get there. And then like, apparently it takes like people exactly the same amount of time as it does to walk half a mile as it does to um, drive from St. Louis to Georgia. <laughs> It's the same. No. It's the same. These, these yeah. are all valid points. I mean, also the fact that like there are, it, there's at least once, if not twice, where people with, uh, where someone with a gun or multiple people with multiple guns just decide not to shoot. They have a clear shot at the bear. Yeah, and they like they're next to it and they have a gun pointed at its head and they're like, oh, wait, we need the, yeah, co- oh. we need the cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole, we need the cocaine too. Like, are you kidding me? Like the whole... Oh, you know, there's this, there's this other guy who's, who's going to kill me if I don't get all the coke. And you're just like, dude, there's no way. You have a cocaine bear. Like, he's eating all the coke. So, like, let it go. Like, wh- why are we scraping to get, like, even one more brick of cocaine from the woods? And also, how, are, how the hell are you going to comb the woods and get all – it just – Yeah, it makes no sense. Well, just, then there, makes- and then there's the girl lost in the woods. She, 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 this, this girl vanishes – for 70 minutes of a 95 minute movie. Oh, and she's just hiding in a cave with the bear cubs. Yeah. Like what? How did she uh-huh. get there? Did the bear drag did her there without it? injuring her? You know, how did she, I, but, how did I mean, she cross the, the river? Get her? Doesn't the bear get her? Yeah. But like, then, yeah, there's a lot, of, there's a lot that doesn't make sense. Let's talk about what's good about the movie. There's, there's, there are a couple of, of really cool set pieces. Like there's a, at one point, the, this, these EMTs show up. They get called for something not cocaine bear related. <laughs> and they show up and there's this awesome like 10-minute set piece that like doesn't cut away. It doesn't let up. It's just pure, raw action. It's kind of almost like something out of a Tarantino movie, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. And it's, no, it's fantastic. And it's great. And it's like super fun. And it is by far, I wouldn't say it's the movie's emotional highlight. There's, there's not a really an emotion in the, to be displayed in the movie, but it is like, it is a great action set piece, like really fun to watch and well-directed and tense and gross. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is like, it is exactly what you think it's going to be. Like the plot doesn't make any sense. The only thing that makes sense is that there's a bear and the bear does a lot of cocaine. And we don't know what would happen if a bear does a lot of cocaine. It would die. Real life, the actual bear dies. Co- like the actual cocaine yeah, exactly. bear did. It would have a heart attack and die. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, clearly this is not. It just makes it, like, a super-powered, supercharged apex predator. And, uh, you know, hijinks ensue. It, it's, 
I, I think in a weird way, this is almost too good at what it's trying to do, which is to be a really like lousy exploitation film from the eighties. And I think I, I'd have to like, and this is where I'm nitpicking, like the, so it's, it totally succeeds at being lousy and it's on, on many levels, but also kind of wonderful on many levels. But then also it is a little too self-aware of what it's doing and a little too proud and wink, wink of itself. I found, you know, it didn't have the, the kind of the oddball grace of some of these exploitation movies that we grew up with in the 70s and 80s, where it was just people trying to make a movie. Apex Predator. High on cocaine. Out of his mind. Oh, oh man, you fucked. What the fuck is wrong with that bear? We have such good luck in nature. Yeah, well, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Banks is is you know not um, an underdog <laughs> filmmaker. I, mean, is, I think that, that I don't know if this is her first directorial effort. It's certainly like her her most major one. But you know she's like a well-established Hollywood star and and uh, you know and uh, persona uh, and, he, and so like you know and Lord and Miller who made the Lego movies among uh, many other uh, films you know they they are not dummies either I mean they know exactly what they were doing they're basically creating a meme they were but you know at the same time like these guys made Twenty One Jump Street Twenty Two Jump Street they made Spider Man you know in the the first Spider Verse you know, animated film. These guys know how to make like smart funny. And I feel like this movie wasn't as smart funny as it could have been. Like I mentioned hot tub time machine as being one of the great, like yeah. insane, stupid titles, right? Brilliantly stupid titles. And that came out about 10 years ago. I watched it recently. I watched it again thinking it was going to be stupid. And it was actually really smart about a lot of stupid stuff. And, and snakes in the plane does not hold up, you know? So I kind of, I guess I'm a little sad that like cocaine bear actually could have been better the bar is low. No one's expecting this to be good. Just good enough. And it, I, I watched you. You saw you went to a critic screening. I watched it at the Alamo Draft House at five o'clock on a Thursday. And let me tell you, there were people. There were people so ready to party at Cocaine Bear. They weren't. Yeah. On, I don't think they were on cocaine. I guess they might have been. But um, you know, they were laughing at. Alden Ehrenreich crying over his dead wa- his his wife who had died from cancer. They were laughing yeah. at that. People were ready to laugh and to be cruel and to be exploitative. And I feel like this movie taps into that. I think it's going to be a big hit. I hope it is a big hit, and I, I don't I don't disagree. I think it, I think it should be, and it could be. And you know, and also in defense of the the screening I saw, I know you're picturing in your head like some sad little room with mice skittering around it and like five people, humorless people watching in judgment. But this was like a bright, you know, they had a reception beforehand. It was at the Whippy Hotel, which is in Midtown. Was there cocaine? Kind of this. No, but they had like, they had a lot of like beer and wine and candy and they had like, there should have been know, they had, they had bear claws. They were passing around with powdered <laughs> sugar on top. Everybody's, and they, they invited, a, like they knew, like don't just show it to critics. It was a pack. It was like 130 people. Most of them were not critics, and they were playing. It played to the room. You know? A screening of New York of Cocaine Bear in New York. New York is the capital of cocaine. They should have had cocaine in the bathroom. <laughs> 
Maybe they did. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. You, well, you didn't do it. Well, regardless, like, I feel like, you know, what I am hoping for a movie, movie like this, and also, let's say, Megan, uh, which is another, like, a standalone, non-sequel, non-IP um, kind of genre movie that came out early this year. I hope that these movies uh, point toward uh, a future of, like, kind of the fun, trashy, dumb, pulpy cinema that isn't directly connected to, like... Uh, an existing franchise, you know, that yeah. I, I have some hope that new, well, that new franchises are actually being born. I could, they're already talking about it, doing a sequel to cocaine bear. Totally. And, and Megan this, already has a sequel all lined up. You're absolutely right. These are going to knock off some great, this is going to kick off rather some great franchises. Well, not great, but good enough franchises that'll make you smile when you pop culture, pop culture franchises. Cause you know, well, that Megan was successful. This movie is going to be successful. I saw Elizabeth Banks saying, well, we're not going to do cocaine bear in space. I'm like, hey, <laughs> yeah, you will. Uh, you might. Why not? You might. Co- the direct-to-video Cocaine Bear Five, Cocaine Bear in Space. It's already in. It's already in progress. <laughs> I want to see it get on the space shuttle. You know what I mean? Like late '80s. Yeah. You know? Maybe that's why it exploded. You know, the Challenger. Because of Cocaine guy. Bear. Because Cocaine, cocaine Bear. Bear. He wandered. He wandered. Maybe. Wandered from the. She. Door. She, she. She. Well, one of the cubs, maybe, maybe a cocaine cub, <laughs> wanders from the Georgia woods to Florida and creeps onto a rocket and then and onto the space shuttle. It's a good idea. It's a good idea. Give me a call, Lord Miller. I'm here. I'm available. I got nothing else to do. Um, <laughs> cocaine Bear is in theaters now. Stephen Garrett is in theaters now. I am also in theaters. Always. Yeah. We're in theaters now. Yeah. And screw uh, streaming. Go see. Go see Cocaine Bear. Don't do cocaine. We'll talk to you soon. So at some point in the last few years, there stopped being sex in movies. Or at least there's a lot less sex in movies. Uh, and also on TV. And this has been a source of uh, some controversy on the corners of the internet where controversy exists. And uh, we wrote about it uh, on Book and Film Globe this week. Specifically, Jake Harris wrote about the lack of sex in movies controversy. And he's here with me now to talk about it. Hello, Jake. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, of course. So I, um, you know, I was watching a movie on Netflix recently, The Nice Guys from 2016, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically like a, a 1970s comedy noir starring Ryan Gosling and uh, Russell Crowe. And it's set, essentially set in the world of porn, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of nudity and sex in that movie. And that was just seven years ago. And I was... and. I was watching it, and I, I was, I mean, I didn't, I didn't mind it so much, but I was, I admitted, I was kind of shocked just because I've kind of stopped seeing net nudity. I mean, you're a lot younger than I am, uh, in, in, scarily, <laughs> scarily younger than I am. But when I was, I was growing up, you know, every movie had naked people in it. Oh yeah, <laughs> didn't yeah. That, Police Academy had naked people in it. You, you know, it's like, Airplane, and now yeah. almost no, and now almost no movies do, and so. So, um, you know, I'm just kind of trying to figure out what's going on. So you, but you wrote about you know, the, the inciting incident for your piece and for a lot of anger on Twitter was this uh, de- declaration that actor Penn Badgley made uh, that he would no longer do sex scenes unless his wife consented to it, right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it was, if he needed to get a, a go ahead from his wife, but he just said that he was, you know, he was at a point in his career now where he just felt like, 
he didn't want to be a romantic lead as much anymore. And he, you know, he's on you on Netflix, which by design that show has like a lot of sex scenes, a lot of masturbation scenes. And so I think he just got to a point where he didn't want to do that anymore. And then he, uh, he said that he didn't want to do any of those scenes just to, to put a barrier and, uh, you know, have more fidelity in his marriage. Um, and then also there's a, some nuances of, you know, power structure going on there too. He said he's getting a lot older than some of his co-stars. And so he just felt weird having a lot of sex scenes where it's him and then younger women. Um, and, uh, just, you know, he's, he's also at a point in his career where he can do that now, right? Like he's, um, you know, gossip girl, uh, some, a lot of other stuff he's been working for a really long time. So he can, uh, he can make that call now, but, uh, he said that he wanted to do that for himself and for his career. Right. Um, and, to, and as you point out in your piece, that is certainly, you know, any actor is free to oh, do yeah. as few or as many sex scenes um, as they want, as, as the work they've been cast in demands it, you know, that, but that's a personal choice. But what right. I find interesting and kind of strange is then the subsequent outpouring on social media by people who are saying, yeah, there shouldn't even be kissing in movies anymore, you know? Yeah, like there's a I don't know if what sides of uh, TikTok you venture onto, but the the film talk or film TikTok area has a lot of people, a lot of young people that just you know are blanketly saying like, hey, I found this thing called the Hayes Code, and we should go back to that, which was, um, if you're familiar with film history, was uh, more about you know uh, making money for uh, studios and wasn't really a lot of. Um, standards that were enforced for stuff back in the day. And it was a lot of impressive. So people, yeah. The Hayes Code came about in the 1930s, right? And if you, if you watch pre-code movies, um, the content was a lot more risque. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and a lot more, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. About, yeah, realistic, you know, about human relationships, right? Um, and they portrayed um, uh, situations involving sex and romance with some nuance and um, some some... I don't know, irony and some dirtiness, right? And then right. the code came along and for a long time, you know, these kinds of relationships became, you know, either very muted and you had to, and you had to like uh, really do a lot of dancing or to get around some of the, some of the restrictions or uh, they became cartoonish, you know? Um, right. and, and, and it took, and it took sort of the new Hollywood re uh, revolution of the six of the late sixties and early seventies to sort of, break that and i feel like yeah you know it's weird like have we come back around to the days there's no official code mind you there's no, still no you know there's not that's not real that's not how it's just a mindset you know it's a mindset kind of a prudish mindset i think yeah it seems to be more um especially among younger people too but like even if you look at movies that are in theaters now like if you want anything that has any sort of like expression of sexuality or anything in it uh pretty much i think this weekend i haven't seen cocaine bear yet but uh no sexuality in cocaine bear no okay uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of people's limbs getting torn <laughs> off and guts getting eaten out that's fine yeah we can show all that but you know god forbid we we see any anything else that has to do with with our bodies on screen uh but your only options are basically like the new magic mike movie or the re-release of titanic which i think might still be in theaters but that movie's almost 30 years old uh and so you know even um there is a lot of there are, there are a couple of pretty pretty uh sexual scenes in magic Mike, but even then there's no actual skin it's all like sort of implied sexuality and he, even that sort of denudes the stripping act a little bit and turns it into sort of like a broadway dance show 
Right, right. And so it's the the people that are complaining, you know, about, uh, you know, saying that Penn Badgley's stance should be something that's applied to everything. And then they're complaining about their, you know, it's just too gross or they don't want to see it on screen. Like, I don't know what they're seeing, really. Uh, there's, yeah. there's not much in theaters if they are really offended by that. Yeah, there's not much in theaters. And there's even, I would say, I would say if you go to streaming, there's more. Yeah, like, there's more. There, there is sex to be found. Your HBO uh, and you know, stuff like that, especially. Yeah, there's some pre, there's some premium TV sex, but even that, I feel like you know we're we're past the days of, um, I don't know, The Sopranos and and other sort of, you know, there there was a time when like every premium cable show had a ton of sex, even. Um, even the uh, Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon certainly had some dirty sex in it, but it wasn't every single week like in uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, the House of the Dragon was more about showing like horrible birth scenes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, you know, and certainly like the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, as you pointed out in your piece, is notoriously sexless. Oh, God. yeah. It's like the, I think it, it was weird because Eternals made headlines for the fact that they had a sex scene. And so it was a weird, like both sides were flipping it where, you know, the, the adults who, who like go into those movies were like, Oh, finally we get to see at least something that, you know, reflects that these people live in a world where this can happen. And then everyone else is saying, well, no, we shouldn't be doing this because it's a PG 13 movie. Someone think of the children, even though it's, you know, it's, it's basically the from here to eternity scene uh, with superheroes. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, exactly, but but a lot less erotic. So yeah, I'm just wondering, like, if this is just a blip. Uh, speaking of Marvel, or, or are are we about to, uh, you know, about to embark on some sort of rebirth of the erotic thriller genre? I keep seeing like, where have all the erotic thrillers gone? Did people, did people really like erotic thrillers that much? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the what was the the Anna Diarmas thing with Ben Affleck? Oh, deep, that deep really, water. Yeah, yeah, that got they got roundly derided, but it was erotic. Yeah. And then, yeah. So I don't know if people are wanting to go back to that. I think it, you know, especially as the the younger generation comes of age more and we get more filmmakers from like Gen Z and stuff like that, there might be a more sway to, uh, to the more puritanical side of things. But then, uh, you know, I don't right. know. I've seen a lot of stuff from at least people like I'm a older millennial uh, and above, you know, kind of fighting back against it. And so everything that has even like a whiff of sex in it is being celebrated as something for adults. So um, I think there's going to be some push and pull for it for a while. I know that I would celebrate a whiff of sex in my own life. So. <laughs> <laughs> just even a, just even a whiff, just, just, just something just on the little. wind. Just like when I used to live down the street from the donut shop and they, they'd fire up the ovens, you know, I'd be like, Oh, look at that. And I'd, I'd float down the street like a cartoon cat or something. Anyway. All right. Well, um, we cover this uh, in great detail in uh, in Book and Film Globe this week. Thank you so much, Jake. Uh, here's to uh, here's to a life full of uh, of sexy scenes in movies. Cheers. All right, thanks, Jake Harris. You can read Jake's piece about the decline of sex in modern Hollywood movies on Book and Film Globe. www.bookandfilmglobe. Com. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for stopping by to talk to me about the legendary and also not legendary film Cocaine Bear. And thanks to Michael Washburn for talking to me about the recent efforts to censor, to bodlerize, to modernize, it's very pathetic, uh, the works of Roald Dahl. Let's hope that the reaction to that effort uh, leads to no more efforts like it. 
in the future. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. I'm your host for this weekly romp through the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. Keep watching. Don't do cocaine. It's bad for you. That's putting it mildly. We'll talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to thebookhousemilburn.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. Thebookhousemilburn.com